Welcome to Silicon Valley Momentum, where advisor and author Roland Siebeling talks all things tech startups and brings you interviews with founders across the world. Now, here's your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Silicon Valley Momentum podcast. I'm very excited today because we have with us three co-founders of one of the leading new startups in Silicon Valley and around the world, because which company is not remote these days, right? Uh, it's CodeCov, and uh, we have with us CEO Jared Engelberg, CTO Eli Hooten, and VP of Engineering, Subi Baidas. Do I pronounce all your names correctly? Close enough for government work. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows if that's the only work that will remain with this current economy, right? You know, so right? <laughs> that's uh, very good. Um, awesome. So, and in this series of podcasts, we like to just talk with all these fast-growing startups about what is the specific thing they offer to which target market, the broader vision that they're a part of, and then things like traction, how much success are they having, uh, things like uh, new usage, uh, key backers, and of course the goals, because as listeners to this podcast, we want to know, is this a company we want to work with as a supplier? Is it people we can learn from? Or maybe even some people are listening and say, I'd like to join this company as an employee. So let's make it as exciting as possible. My name is Roland Siebeling, and I am a scale-up coach for tech companies uh, like to talk with all tech companies around the world. So if you have more people that would like to be interviewed on this podcast, please also drop me a line. So Jared, let's start with you. Tell us about CodeCov. What problem do you solve? What's your target group? And what's your differentiation? Sure. Thanks, Roland. And, and thank you so much for having us on. Really excited to be here. Uh, our company is CodeCov. It's the first seven letters of code coverage. So it should be now self-evident what we do if you know code coverage. You're mm -hmm. the leading code coverage provider in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but let me take a step back and explain what that is. So developers write code. This is very, very simple. Uh, simplification. Uh, developers write code. I would posit that good developers write tests on that code to ensure its functionality. Um, you run your tests to see if your code is working. You push it out to production after the tests pass and, and are approved. And then all of a sudden your code breaks again. Why? Well, maybe you didn't test all of your code or you didn't more, more accurately, you didn't test the most pertinent parts of your code to ensure functionality of what you're trying to build. And that's the role of code coverage. It's a, it, it works hand in hand um, with how you write tests on your code base to ensure the functionality or kind of a numerator of what you've tested versus the denominator of everything in your code base. Mm -hmm. Very good. So code coverage. Code coverage is not a new idea. Uh, I mm -hmm. like to talk about the fact that uh, Eli is an academic. Uh, code coverage has been around since the 60s. Um, mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, okay, well, why does the world need a code coverage solution now? Um, and, and how do we differentiate? So I think one of the things we always think about is that historical brand of code coverage. Uh, and what, what that historical brand is, is what was my code coverage last week, last month, last year, kind of a static perspective on, on your code base, you know, the hundreds of thousands or millions of lines of code that a project can have. Mm -hmm. But a couple of things changed over the last 20 years that really put code coverage back into focus. And those two things were source code and source code management started happening on the cloud and in a shared way. And mm -hmm. most notably by virtue of Git based code hosting, GIT, mm -hmm. so that our companies like GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, et cetera. 
simultaneous to that was the rise in continuous integration mm -hmm. or, or CI. Uh, and that's just a way to test your code uh, much more quickly every time that you're shipping what's called a commit or a change to the code base. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you put those two things together, all of a sudden code is getting shipped more quickly. It's getting tested. It's visible in the cloud. And what CodeCov can do or, or the big innovation that we had with this market is to test not what your code coverage was historically, but what your code coverage will be the next time that you merge code. Right, it's a forward-looking, we took a historical-looking metric and they made it a forward-looking metric. And that's so important because mm -hmm. it allows managers and code reviewers, engineers to preemptively check their code prior to, to merging it in. Um, that's at what's called the pull request stage or, or merge request stage. Um, um, I think uh, before we go into the specific pain points that you address and what uh, customers that particularly attracts, you mentioned something in our um, talk before the podcast that uh, this was originally a one-person company, and then uh, then you went uh, to to scaling it from a solo founder to uh, what is now uh, what is it a couple of tens of employees? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Roland. Um, yeah, I'd love to tell the backstory. Of Please. Okay. I'm so so passionate about it, and maybe people will find this interesting. So, uh, unlike the typical startup in Silicon Valley, where the founder, the, the original founder become kind of the scaling uh, executives. Yeah. Uh, for CodeCov, uh, actually, we call ourselves kind of the refounding team, Eli, Supi, and myself, but uh, mm -hmm. the, the founder himself, uh, Steve Peake, uh, started this company because he wasn't satisfied with the code coverage solutions that were available in the market mm -hmm. in 2014 uh, as a solo project, uh, uh, side project, really. Um, and it just absolutely caught fire. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. Um, he really nailed the, the pain point in the market around some of the points that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, yep. First with the Python community, but then to many more. Um, and I think, you know, three years after that, Steve looked up uh, and said, oh my God, I now have you know, tens of thousands of users, hundreds of customers, um, almost like what, what happened. And I think it's so cool, honestly, that we're in this modern era where you know, with, with the rise of cloud-based infrastructure through the AWSs of the world that anyone can make this project. It's a pure meritocracy mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, there's instant distribution as well. And so my background, I, I came from the product and venture side of the world. So I got mm -hmm. to talk to a lot of young companies. I helped build an equity crowdfunding platform yeah. prior to this. And so when I met Steve in Amsterdam, just by, by random chance, uh, like, wow, Steve, this is a great company. This is really exciting. And a few months later, he came back to me and he's like, hey, I love CodeCov. I love what I'm doing, but it's become, you know, hundreds of support tickets and all these sales inquiries. And I don't have any other employees. I don't know if this is what I signed up for. Um, he was doing a great job. But then simultaneously, he started to see an angle for another amazing project, which he's working on now. I'll come back to. Yeah, sure. And I said, okay, Steve, like, let me see if I can help out. Um, so I kind of started working part-time with him just to kind of anchor some of the excess work that was available. And then finally we got to the point where I was like, you know, I really think there's, there's something here. And going back to this point about the open source community, mm -hmm. let's at minimum, let's just make sure this project sustains, right? Like as, as well founded right. um, is bringing in some money as well to, to pay for operations in our budget. We're fully bootstrapped. Yeah. And, and finally I, I'm just kind of took the plunge and said, I, I think I should work on this full time. And Steve um, 
it's really a, a, a pretty cool moment for him to be willing to um, kind of give up his, his creation for adoption, so to speak. It really was, didn't feel like a, a hostile takeover of any type. Um, like it was time to kind of help this creation grow to, mm-hmm. to its adulthood. And uh, that was, that was really cool. And at that time, thank you. Yeah, I, for, yeah. Thank you for sharing. It's such an inspiring story because uh, you know, when I work with uh, scaling companies, often there's that big fear, like when do we get the hostile takeover? When will the yeah. investors kick me out? And I think uh, this example of uh, Steve just kind of knowing intuitively that, maybe he doesn't want to stay CEO of a company like this. Maybe he wants to work on a new project and finding somebody to hand his baby over to. I think that's very inspiring. Um, I always tell founders I work with, look, um, I want to keep you in charge for as long as you want to. And sometimes that as you want to is shorter than uh, for other people, right? So, and then on top of that, the story even came from my home country. So, you know, now I'm double inspired. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll kind of chime in a little bit here on the story. Sure. I think what was really important um, to make that handover go so well was just trust and how like important trust was as an element of this whole thing. Mm. Um, you know, there was never a moment where um, at least that I'm aware of, <laughs> where Steve, where Steve said, "Are these the people I should hand this off to?" You know, and and the reason we were able to get to that was, you know, one, we just we put in the work. You know, yeah. Jared helped in a contract capacity or a part-time capacity, and, and you built that relationship and you built that trust. And so when it came time, you know, I think the writing was on the wall from everybody. You know, Steve wanted to go do something, us wanting to jump in in a higher capacity. It was like it was obvious the trust was there. And it was just time, at that point. It was just you know dot in the eyes and cross the t's and so if anybody's out there considering a non-hostile takeover of a company yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say that trust is the most important asset you have there and to put in the work and lean on it also as i sense putting in the work seems like like it's turned into a core value almost for you guys yeah it's uh i would say that hits two of our core values one being sense of ownership right like that mm-hmm. really feeling that the buck stops with you as in whatever that we're doing for the company and, and two is default to transparency right at every stage of this process kind of maximizing transparency occasionally that means smashing an egg on your face and getting embarrassed but uh but i think it's super important especially in like a, a time of of movement or change like Eli's referring to but really any day of the week Sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, since uh, we don't uh, publish the video here, you're welcome to just smack an egg, smash an egg on your face if you'd like to. <laughs> People won't be able to see it. Um, I wanted to bring up that uh, core values point because so many founders say, you know, how important is it really to work on that esoteric stuff like core values? Uh, you know, we're about code releases, hard results. What's your experience with, you know, spending time on defining core values, trying to live them, taking them seriously? Sure. Uh, I, I'm actually very curious on Eli and Supi's point here. They've also both, they both worked at amazing startups prior to this as well. Uh-huh. I can just speak quickly from my perspective, which sure. is uh, as someone who helped a lot of seed companies, uh, our, our equity crowdfunding platform invested in uh, a few hundred of them actually. Mm-hmm. There's there's very few ways to provably say how a company will succeed, but there are definitely some ways to provably show where a company will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would definitely categorize the point that you just brought up, Roland, about mission principles and values or lack thereof as an early point of failure if not done well. So that, that's mm-hmm. that's the stakes that are at play, right? Yep. Now, 
I don't want it to sound daunting. The opportunity is also massive, you know, especially for us being a remote only company, but really for any company, like having these mission principles and values codified from the early days. And these are organic, by the way, they can change over time. You don't have to get it perfectly right from day one, but at least put your best foot forward on them. Um, really allows the shared understanding that scales beyond any individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, our team is closer to 20 people now. Mm-hmm. If, like, at some point, I'm not going to be able to be the auditor of if we're, like, uh, ascribing or living by code code values every day. And we really have to instill these from, from day one. And I personally onboard every employee um, mm-hmm. in this topic, right? It's just so important to, to, to build that shared understanding. Yeah. You like? Yeah. Um, in, a, in one sentence, uh, defining your mission, principle, and values, I think, is the most important work you can do at the time that you don't think is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, especially when you're really, really early, like, you just, there's so much you have to do or there's so much going on, especially for us when we kind of like took over this company, there was so much work to do. Uh, but we carved out the time and we did it. Um, and I think that as a company, it's, it's, it helps you every day if you have those defined. It's very easy to look at a decision um, that you're trying to make or that others have made and you can go, Hey, let's go back and look at these principles. Like, are you sure we're kind of like on, well, on brand here? Like, is this, uh-huh. this really the right way to be trying to solve this problem? And, um, you know, we, we kind of believe in this so much that, um, whenever we want to hire for a new sort of like vertical or new part of the business that we yeah. don't have already, mm-hmm. the first thing we do is define mission value principles. Like mm-hmm. what, what should, what should encapsulate this role? And from then on, we can develop a recommendation, like a, a rec and all the other stuff that goes along with making a key hire. But, but the first thing is to step back and say, you know, what, what should this person use as kind of their North star? I think it was especially important for us because we had like engineers in Amsterdam, in Brazil, in Canada, mm-hmm. and some of these engineers, culturally have not worked uh, with someone from these countries before. And the way you make decisions, the way you present your opinion um, is very, very different. So kind of having these guiding principles about how we make decisions and how we interact was kind of a requirement for us because we're, because of how distributed of a team we are. Do you have an example guys about where, you know, you were making a decision or getting close and then really pulling back and saying, actually, this is the wrong decision because of our, mission value principles, if you can share something. Um, I can talk in the abstract. Um, sure. Jared may have a specific one. One of our values, and it's, it's I, I like to use this as an example because it's the hokiest one, um, is um, deliver with love. So okay. like deliver everything you kind of do, deliver your products, deliver your conversations, you know, deli- just deliver with love, be, be cool to each other, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and there have been times where, you know, that we can see in Slack and, and through various conversations, like, ah, eh, that didn't, you know, like that felt a little bit too, too maybe hostile or aggressive. Like, mm-hmm. let's go back to this value. It's deliver with love. Let's talk about lots here and what it means. Um, and I think it can really help kind of get stilted conversations back on track if things maybe get a little too personal or a little too heated or mm-hmm. adamant. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. But but it, it's nice to have that sort of bedrock principle you can look at and go, look, this this is why we have this. So try to follow it. Um, that's kind of the abstract. I know Jared or Subi may have a more specific one. I think one of our core decision-making principles that Subi was referring to that I'm really proud of is we don't, we try not to be outcomes oriented. Okay. Right? So what I mean by that is try to make the best possible decision that you can at the moment you're making the decision mm-hmm. and, and don't uh, in retrospect uh, be combative with that decision. If, if it turned out to be wrong said, said differently, mm. uh, a, 
a bad outcome with the right decision-making principles in, in our estimation is better than a good outcome vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a bad, bad decision, right? Like e.g. getting lucky. Um, and that's a really hard one to do because we make so many decisions so fast. And um, yeah, I'm just said differently, like if something goes wrong, we don't, we don't point fingers or blame. We go back to the original decision that we made and ask, did we make the best possible decision at the time with the information that was available to us? Um, and I'm really- that's a, Yeah, that's amazing. That's such good practice and so rarely practiced. I think um, the guys at Andreessen Horowitz have been writing about that as well, right? That they try to focus on the decision-making process and not whether it actually turned out to be a good result or, or not. Um, as you're already 20 people, that must also mean that you're starting to see the need to scale decisions and to drive more decisions to the to the line. Is that something you struggle with? Is it something that 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 is easy? How how have you experienced that that uh, challenge? Yeah, I think the engineering team should comment here because that's our largest team in financial the, yeah. the scale decision. Yeah, I think something that always comes up. Um, from any startup that is scaling from, I would say, like a few founders plus one or two engineers to 10, 20 engineers is the question of product. How do we mm -hmm. decide or how much are engineers um, involved with uh, the product decisions, with um, buttons, with how pages are designed? And I think when you are like between two and 15 people, then the most important thing is to hire engineers that can make those decisions. Um, I think hiring product very, very early on, sometimes, again, it depends on the context of what you're building and how easy or how much your engineers understand it. But for us, because our core product is for developers, yeah. um, we, re we relied pretty deeply on um, our engineers using the products that they're building and kind of create acceptance criteria and kind of shaping it. And I think mm -hmm. that model, even as, as engineers being the core uh, users of our products, um, what needs to scale is being able to make those decisions and to be able to, to uh, at a scale, hire engineers that can make those decisions. So I think that's something to think about is when is the right moment to bring a product manager? And that's something um, that we're actively uh, looking at and how do we incorporate product decision making in a more scalable way? So you're saying, uh, Subi, if I understand you correctly, that in the earlier stage, it's better to hire broader skill sets, people that are comfortable um, being more of a generalist, uh, maybe. And then as you grow further, then you start having more space for specialists, people who are more comfortable within their box. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would say so. And you can look at companies like Stripe, for example, like they introduced yeah. product managers way later on in the in the process and i think having a close feedback loop and hiring engineers that have an eye for product um, really helps a small team move quickly what do you drive in your decision framework as you call it what do you want people to think about as they make a decision can you provide an example sure so we had to change our pricing uh, we were on a legacy pricing model um, from from way back in the day from like 2016 when Steve started the company because that's how uh, GitHub specifically was priced at that time which was priced yeah. per code repository kind of like maybe the mm -hmm. equivalent of pricing per Dropbox folder sort of yeah. 
it's a very loose analogy, but mm -hmm. over time, GitHub switched their pricing to per user pricing uh, and per user pricing is a reasonably fair way to capture value that you create for engineering teams because most dev tools mostly are like a tool that an engineer takes to work every day or that's, that's mm -hmm. our aspiration. Yep. Well, there's a lot of debate about how and when to change the pricing and who gets hurt, uh, who gets helped, right? Some people have hundreds of repositories in a very small team. They can't even use CodeCub because they're priced out. Some yeah. people have thousands of engineers in one repository, so they were using CodeCub mm -hmm. for free, right? And so back to Eli's, the point Eli brought up, deliver with love, right? Like how do we be very empathetic with the experience of each of the mm -hmm. users? But moreover, the stakeholders on the code code side that are affected by this are far ranging from sales to customer success, to product, to engineering. And so the way that we always do this is we have to agree on the ingredients to the decision themselves before we make a decision. And I think the one that there, there's a couple places that I think people can get this wrong. Uh, we always talk about what, what's the problem that's being solved, not what is the solution mm -hmm. that we're choosing between. Two yep. is do we like what's the input data that we're using to actually make this decision? Yep. Three is what are the goals of the organization that, and that rolls all the way back up to the mission and, mm -hmm. and principles that we have. And four is do we agree on the underlying framework for making the decision? Kind of a meta point about right. decision framework itself. And what's cool about this, and when I talk about the non-consensus driven decision making or, or best possible answer decision making. Mm -hmm. If you see eye to eye on all four of those points, ideally the team would also agree on the outcome, not like yep. a compromise between two or three different team members. Um, mm -hmm. I know that's, that's a little bit heretical what I'm saying, because I think compromise is such a valued perspective and like in our democratic systems, which are, I, I totally get. Mm -hmm. But for us, we're trying to find the best answer. And it doesn't matter what, whether you're the CEO or you know the person who started yesterday, right? Like, your, your input is equally valued so far as uh, you're helping imp helping these four, four factors. And so for us, it was, we agreed on the problem. There's a pricing mismatch. Yeah. We evaluated some different possibilities and we found that per user was, was the most apt based on the input data regarding, um, we had some people paying us per user anyway through some different sources. We saw that it was good mm -hmm. success there. We, we studied market examples of places like GitHub and other developer tools that charge per user. We looked at our organizational goals and we said, hey, if we really want this to scale to all open source and all um, like enterprise users around the world, right. yeah. this is this this much better aligns with that goal than, than our original pricing structure. And, and we use this framework and I think we were able to kind of get that uh, perfect resonance or alignment across the engineering product and customer stakeholder um, that we work with. Awesome. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a, like it's, it's not without its challenges and, and sure. we're always working to like help every one of these customers use CodeGov in the best possible way, but it was clear it was the right, right step for the, the company. That's excellent. And yeah, it's really a, an almost like a perfect example of how to apply those, um, you know, lists of core values, mission, principles, in order to scale so many other decisions, right? I love that you always put the goals of the organization back in, in that decision framework to also teach new people in the company to work towards the goals of the organization, I think, right? That's awesome. Um, so it does mean sometimes you know, 
Lai, Subi, Jared, you guys as the founders, re-founders, will be overruled, right? How does that feel? Amazing. Yeah. That's good, yeah. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Um, I acknowledge immediately that I'm not always right. Um, and, you know, and I think- Can we have that in writing, please? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I wear my humility on my sleeve, I hope. But yeah, I'm, um, you know, and, and look, if, if the people that join CodeCov, uh, kind of no matter what position or role they're in, are, are leveraging our sort of decision-making process and framework, and they, they come to a conversation and go, look, you're wrong, and they kind of turn that process against me and prove it, it's like, great, this is exactly what I want to see, you know, because I love a counter-opinion. It's like steeped in the same sort of rigor, um, you know, because that means you can lend a lot of credence or validity to that opinion. And so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll get overruled every day. <laughs> that probably means there's a better <laughs> idea uh, for sure. So we've talked a little bit about uh, traction and how the company is growing. Anything more you want to share about that? Sure. So, um, yeah, I, you know, we really measure our success, as mentioned, on, on two uh, scales. One is our open source usage or, or kind of usage across all developers. And the other is our relationship that we have in order to get into an enterprise and get developers within an enterprise, that relationship is really made on the revenue layer, right? Like we have yeah. these contracts that we have to sign. And so um, we always measure revenue and our overall like user base. Mm -hmm. Our user base is now uh, well into the hundreds of thousands, nearly a million uh, active developers using CodeCab, which is just incredibly exciting for us. Wow. And um, I really think also just almost like vertigo inducing because you know we're only a team of 20. Yeah. <laughs> that many people. Um, that's been really great. And then on the revenue side, uh, yeah, re really excited to say that, you know, our revenue is over doubling each year. Um, awesome. And a lot of that growth comes from not just new logos, but also land and expand. Um, yeah. So our so net retention rate right? is well Especially above 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just, it just, it's promising to us both from a metrics perspective, but also it reveals something about our usage from our customers where mm -hmm. You know, it's not a, we sell and then wipe our hands clean and say, okay, well, you guys figure it out, right? We're really trying to say, what does it take to go from one team to, to a few teams, from a few teams to the whole company? Um, we always, we almost think about each of those jumps as its own, its own sale. Before we close, uh, what is like a key learning as a founder that you've had and what do you feel that other founders um, could learn from you and your experience in uh, refounding CodeCov and bringing it to this level of success? Sort of the needs or the priorities or what's important when you're a single founder or a team of two or three aren't the same things that a scaling team needs to focus on when it yeah. comes to building a product or a company. Um, and I think there's a lot of, um, I guess sort of the immature way of looking at it would be like you take over this company, you're like, oh, this is all terrible, I hate it. Um, <laughs> but but in truth, it's actually, you you by taking a company at that stage, um, you, you've removed so much risk, I think, from the table yep. uh, when it comes to like doing, if, if the alternative is doing something yourself, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's demand, you know, people are using it. And like, if the biggest problem you have to solve is how do I take this product that is loved and make it mm -hmm. be loved more? How do right. I take this product that can scale and make it scale more? Um, those are really, really fun problems to solve. And so if you're ever if you ever get to be on the driver's seat of that as like a technical person, as an engineer, like jump in with both feet because it is, it is so much fun. Um, and uh, run a remote company. <laughs> Those, are my two. Those are my two. Very good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jared Engelberg, Eli Houghton, and Subi Bedas. 
uh, the founders, co-founders, re-founders of CodeCoff. This was an amazing conversation. If people want to learn more about you, where should they go? CodeCoff.io. CodeCoff.com works too. Okay, excellent. Very good. So uh, let's see those leads and uh, possible employees flow in. And thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Roland. Like what you heard? Subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Tune in next time for more tech news and interviews with some of the brightest minds in tech today.